I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to a special Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today's show, the theme, Why Staying in Academia Causes Mental Disorders. Now, right up front, I'm not talking about clinical diagnosed disorders. I'm talking about the mental challenges, the struggles, uh, the thing that makes you sedate by drinking every night uh, or after your meeting with your PI, uh, the, the, the undescribable urge or feeling that you're not accomplishing anything at all in academia, that you're not making any progress, that you don't even have any clear goals, and you've lost your purpose. You've lost sight of why you went to graduate school in the first place. You don't even know how you got into a postdoc. You're unemployed after getting a PhD. How did that happen? That disorder is what I'm talking about and why it's so common. I have a lot to share with you today. I want to start by telling everybody about a special that we have coming up at Cheeky Scientist. It's a very special event. We're calling it the Job Search Jumpstart Event. This event is happening very, very soon. And I want you to be the first to know because you follow our radio show or because uh, you, you have our podcast and you've downloaded this episode. This will be quick, the Job Search Jumpstart it's going to be a, a very special event where you can get access to every single Cheeky Scientist Advanced program. And we have a lot of new programs, including a business development program called the Business Development Federation. Uh, we are coming out with the User Experience Squad. User Experience Researcher roles and Analyst roles are extremely popular. That's included in this deal, in this event, uh, in this special package. Uh, you're also, we also have a, another new program called the Intellectual Property Pack. You're the first to hear about these. That will be included as well. Patent agent, patent examiner, intellectual prop property, very popular among PhDs. Of course, we had the Clinical Research Coalition that came out recently. Uh, explosive program. So many PhDs joined that one. It makes sense because uh, it's becoming more and more well-known. You don't need clinical experience to get into a clinical research scientist position or a clinical research associate position. Uh, so if perhaps you're a new listener, uh, we have a special package that includes every advanced program called Executive Key. Uh, this special event, the Job Search Jumpstart event, uh, will occur for one day only on January 18th. That's a Monday, January 18th for one day only where you can get the executive key with or without the Cheeky Scientist Association if you're not an associate yet. So stay tuned for details on that. They'll be all over our website. Make sure you're following us on social media. We have a lot of fun posts, uh, a lot of free bonuses that we're going to be giving out, especially to those who get on the VIP list. Uh, we'll announce that VIP list but uh, on the next radio show. But you can go to our website and there will be a banner, a drop down. It'll be very easy to find that VIP list uh, when uh, you hear this show. It should be up, in fact, in a couple of days. I think it'll be on the website very likely by Wednesday, January 13th. Okay, so back to the challenges that academia causes, the, the angst, the disorder, uh, the apathy even. Now, I remember one of my earliest 
earliest memories of graduate school was going uh, to a, a dinner or a, an event. It was like a wine and cheese event. You do a lot of these in graduate school. I guess you feel like a young professional. I'm sure uh, the customs are maybe different in, in different countries, but you get together with some other new graduate students. You get together with some, maybe some postdocs, maybe some professors. And you start talking and, and start getting immersed in the culture of graduate school or of being a PhD student or being a, you know, maybe a postdoc at a new university and you're invited to this event. And I was talking to somebody and they had been in a postdoc for a few years. They were talking about their research, very kind. It was one of the people hosting the event. And I remember them telling me, I really love wine. <laughs> and it started as a, you know, a kind of a joke at first, but the person started talking about how with all of the challenges they'd faced in their postdoc and not getting into a professorship, uh, that they had really become a wine connoisseur. And the, the wine, they said, kind of helped take the edge off. And, uh, you know, by no means I, do I think, I don't know, was this person an alcoholic or anything, but I could tell that uh, she, you know, it was almost like an awkward experience because she got a little too deep. Like you could tell there was some pain there. And I just, I remember how that made me feel. Uh, and, you know, there's, I, I can paraphrase a famous quote, you know, you might have a hard time remembering what people say, what they do, but you'll never forget how they make you feel. And I just remember feeling uh, very bad, badly for this person. I remember feeling concerned. What have I gotten myself into? Why would this person need a, a crutch such as wine to uh, take the edge off uh, the sting of being a postdoc? You know, why, why did they get into a postdoc in the first place? Uh, what, what, what pain was this person experiencing that they had to sedate themselves? And this was very new to me because I had just got into grad school, right? So you're thinking, oh, okay, I'm in grad school. I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going to be a doctor. You know, you think you're so far ahead. You've made such an intelligent, brilliant decision, but you're seeing somebody and you're like, wait a sec, you're highly intelligent. You have your PhD. You're doing a postdoc, which I kind of understand what it is, but uh, clearly at the time didn't understand how uh, dark it is and how it actually damages uh, a PhD's career. And that really stuck with me. That was one of my first memories. And, you know, obviously after seeing what so many other PhDs have gone through and after having experienced a lot of this pain myself, it makes sense to me. You know, I think all of us at some point in graduate school, perhaps in a postdoc, at some point in academia, we realized that the system was broken. We became disillusioned, and that caused pain. Uh, as PhDs, we can handle a lot of pain. We like challenge. We think, oh, this is hard. This is painful. Okay, I'm on the right track, right? Very different than the average population, than the 98% the of the, the rest of the population, I would say, because around 1.6 to 2% of the population only has a PhD. And we're just wired differently. So we can you know, sit in that moderate pain or even that moderate to high level pain for a long time. And it's not until it becomes so severe that, that we have a, a, a breakdown, that we have a, some sort of a disorder takes us over. Sometimes it comes out physically for some people. Uh, sometimes uh, people, you know, you sink into a, a bout of depression. You get hooked on some sort of crutch, right? You just give up. 
you know, you, you start playing uh, video games on your computer. You get hooked on, I don't know, Candy Crush or Angry Birds for a while. Uh, you find ways to escape the classroom or the lab uh, to hide from your professor. I've done all these, by the way, I think. Uh, you, you have some sort of stress response in your body. You start having panic attacks. I know some other people uh, that, that we've interviewed, their, their hormones have gone out of whack, all from the stress. And it's not, it's not the stress that a PhD handles very well or that I would even say that a PhD needs. This is, you know, you stress. It's, you know, the, the stress that comes with a discovery that excites you of working really hard on something, that early uh, energy that you feel when you give, are given your own project or when you get close to graduating. Not that stress, not the good stress that sharpens you, but the, the distress, uh, the, the struggle, the, the chronic distress of what am I doing? I'm trapped. This is leading towards a dead end. Uh, nothing I'm doing is making a difference. All I do is feel, I feel stupid all the time. My PI, other people make me feel stupid. They're trapped. They won't, they won't give me a target to hit. They won't tell me what I have to do to, to graduate or to become a professor. They just keep moving the target or everything's fuzzy or foggy. We've all, unfortunately, many of us have known somebody or have been just one degree of separation or two degrees of separation at the most from somebody in academia that's committed suicide for one reason or another. I had somebody in my entering class commit suicide. And, you know, thankfully, I think the trend is to discuss this more openly in academia, but we have to ask why, what leads to this? What, what is the slippery slope? Where is the support? Very often the answer to feeling uh, that we're not making progress is to become more isolated. We isolate ourselves. And if we challenge anything, even our PI or the university uh, will play a part in isolating you. They just want to, you know, have the problem go away. They're, they're concerned, you know, to be fair, they're concerned for their own life in academia, their own career. They're not getting paid well. Uh, you know, they're overworked. Uh, they should have transitioned years ago. And now they're just trying to justify to themselves their decision to stay in this broken system. And they need you to make them staying possible. They need you as cheap labor. It's broken. So again, you know, from my own experience and what I've seen in others, uh, it's it, there's eventually a breaking point. And and really, the the goal for me personally, for for cheeky scientists, is to expose this as early as possible. Right? Moderate pain is the worst enemy. We can sit in moderate pain for a long time, much longer than other people, because we're PhDs. We're very driven. Again, we think that cha that chain the the challenge, the pain is good. I want, to, I want you to make a change before the pain gets so severe, before you have a, a breakdown of any kind, before you have to drink bottles of wine every night, you know, before you go through a, a phase where you're you know, playing video games or just doing something else to distract you. you know, I've, I went through all of these phases in graduate school. I remember it's before they had Angry Birds or Candy Crush or any of these games that I, I, I've heard people kind of get hooked on and you know, just gives them a, a purpose when they can't find any in academia. It, sound, it might sound silly to you, but I promise you, there is a lot of PhDs that come to us and, and talk about finding something like that, a an obsession. They can't find a healthy obsession, so they get obsessed with something that's meaningless. There was a game called Castle 
Castle Crush, which is basically Angry Birds. It was like the first game that was kind of like that with a catapult. I remember playing this for a few weeks after a thesis committee meeting where they said, you know, where they basically were very vague once again with any sort of timeline and what I needed to do to graduate, et cetera. Uh, I went through a very tough time where I had to even defend my position. I was co-first author on a paper and I thought that was going to help me graduate and be added uh, to a list of accolades to give me at least a target or what else I had to do to graduate. But instead, my PI really fought against me and started arguing uh, against what I had contributed to that paper just so he could keep me as cheap labor longer. And many of you have, have much worse stories. Uh, we've had a lot of people come to us with much, much worse stories, but it was a very challenging time. So you look for something else because as PhDs, we have very active minds. We're very intelligent. We want to do something. Uh, we have more energy. We can do a uh, higher level work, more volume of work than other, pe other people. And, and academia stops making sense to us because we're not given any direction. Like the management structures, the, the management capabilities of most PIs, most lifetime academics are awful because there's no management training. Uh, there, you know, there's no financial training, management training, uh, so that basically those two are a very deadly combination <laughs> to, to labs and to departments because they, they don't know what they're doing. The university is a, is a business at the end of the day, and they don't know what they're doing, so they get themselves in trouble, like my PI had got his first R01, lots of funding, uh, was you know spending money left and right, didn't really want to uh, keep track of things, didn't really have a budget. I remember he specifically said to me one time, uh, you know, it's better to just do the experiments and not worry about tracking uh, how much things cost because you can always get more funding by doing more experiments. And I was like, oh, sounds good. But uh, of course, when I was in graduate school, the 2008 financial crash happened and things changed pretty quickly, right? The money was gone. Things were very tight. Stress levels were very high. People started getting booted out of the lab. And when this is happening around you and at the same time, you don't feel like anybody's looking out for your career. You don't know how to look out for your own career. It, it, can, be, it can be very challenging and, and you can turn to other avenues for an escape. And again, uh, you know, for me, I, I looked elsewhere for sedation, really. I was like, oh, I can play this game. I can, you know, try to not spend as much time in the lab. Um, you know, I, I can just watch, uh, uh, look forward to watching a movie every night. Just, you know, these things that we do to escape reality, the painful reality of what we're experiencing. At the same time, because of everything happening after the, the financial crash and the discord between uh, me, my, myself and my, the, my PI, I started having physical symptoms. I started having panic attacks. And you know, it's so funny to describe it a panic attack because I remember hearing about panic attacks before I started having them. And I was like, it sounds kind of made up. It sounds like you could just not have them. But your body has uh, other plans. You, you, you feel like you can't breathe and you feel like you are certain you're going to have a heart attack or something bad, it really is going to happen. So much so that you're this you know, very logical, you know, intelligent person going to the emergency room when nothing's wrong with you. And you know, it's all idiopathic. They can't find anything. I mean, it, it is a panic attack, but 
it's because of the anxiety, the stress that you carry around with you. Now that stress, a lot of people who don't understand you, who don't understand what it's like to be a PhD, it's a very rare thing. You're wired differently. You're wired, I would argue, better than others. Because if you have something to pour your large amounts of mental energy into, you can do great things in the world and it satisfies you. It actually fills you up with more energy. But if you have nowhere for that mental energy to go, nowhere for that desire for discovery, that output, no target to hit, no, no big goal, no purpose, it will kill you. I firmly believe that. And that's why I want all of you listening to this to get out of academia after you get your PhD and get into industry and find something that's worthy of all of that mental energy that you have. Because if you can't, because if you try to block it, uh, it'll cause a disorder. It will cause a problem. You know, for me, one of the other things I did is I said, okay, I got to go do something. I got into landscaping. Seriously, I learned how to landscape. I was like raking leaves. I was shoveling snow uh, on the weekends. Like it just gave me something else to do because I had all, there's only so much you can do. You can continue to learn and to read and everything and uh, do all of that. But if it's not taking you anywhere, if you're just stuck in a learning loop and nobody will give you a target to hit, uh, uh, something that's going to get, help you get to that next point in your career, it becomes a very difficult reality uh, to live in. No direction, small challenges, small impact, limited recognition, no structure, no sense of team or you know, being a, having a team that's oriented around a goal. Instead, you, you know, very often you go to a lab meeting or a journal club or uh, you know, if you're a non-STEM PhD, you're, you're going to these meetings as well, and you're, you're discussing things. You're in this learning loop, but your career takes a back seat. It's about the career of your PI, the professor, et cetera. And that's, that's why academia is broken. And on top of all of this, there's this, uh, this elitism. There's this elitism throughout academia right? Everything is so small. There's such limited funding. Everybody's trying to position for who's smart, right? You, you, you can feel, uh, especially when you're first starting out, very insecure to even ask a question during a seminar, et cetera. And people are just looking to pick you apart, to uh, eviscerate your logic. And, and this is good in one sense, like being critical of information, critical of data. This is great. It helps you avoid confirmation bias, but it often turns into something more, right? The lines get blurred and, and it becomes being critical of people, being critical of yourself. Nobody has a target. Nobody's really moving ahead in academia. The, the stakes are so small. The rewards are so small that uh, most people turn to tearing others down, making them feel small just to make themselves feel uh, not small, even for a moment. And this is, uh, this is the problem. And so if, if you've let any of that infect you, that kind of elitist mentality where you think, well, you know, industry is the dark side and people just sell out and they get away from science and it's much nobler work in academia, that is all a lie. And there's lots of lies like that. There's a lie that, oh, your PhD is not valuable in industry. You should put your master's degree on your resume instead. That's a lie. It's nonsense. Uh, or, you know, uh, the fact that you can work autonomously and independently will hurt you in industry. They don't like teamwork. That's a lie. 
the fact that you can't get, you know, you won't be able to work on projects that you're excited about in industry. That's a lie. I mean, there's, first of all, there's no project management whatsoever in academia. Once you get into industry, you'll learn about these different project management methodologies, agile, right? Waterfall, uh, Six Sigma, et cetera. Academia doesn't have that. You, you think you're getting so much done in academia. You're not. The systems are horrible. Uh, the organization, the software, the target's horrible. It's broken. So what do you do? How do you get out of this? How do you avoid it? The answer is not doing less. And again, this is where your friends, your family, they're not going to understand you. They're going to think, oh, you're stressed. You need to do less. You need to take a break. You need to have more work-life balance. That is nonsense. You don't need more work-life balance. You need to get obsessed over something that's productive, that's going to move your career forward. You need to get obsessed over something that has purpose, right? That kind of obsessiveness is good. You need, you need to be able to pour your energy freely into something that's going to help your own career. That, that level of excitement, and you felt it before when you, you know, maybe you've been doing an experiment or researching something or doing interviews for, I mean, like the interviews that you do for qualitative research with, with people, depending on your, you know, your PhD, you've, you've done something, you've been, you've been trying to discover something or, or get a piece of data or some insight that you're on the right path for maybe your thesis work or for something you've done after your thesis. And you've been trying for months and you feel de-energized. You haven't had any, you know, positive data, so to speak in forever. And then finally you get something that shows that you're on the right track. Now you're energized again. Now you know that you're headed on the right track or you need to go on a different track, whatever it is, you have some insight that, that energy pours out of you again. That's what you need. You need to do more. You need a, a, a larger, more worthy challenge, something that's not just a, a learning loop or, or knowledge for knowledge's sake. You need to produce something. You, know, you, need to, you need to get feedback through your work that shows you that you are growing that you're growing in your career, that you're going to produce something one day, whether it's a product or a service or a treatment, you're going to have an impact. Unfortunately, in academia, especially today, I mean, it's not where we were in the 1970s, certainly not the 1950s or before, the impact that the majority, the majority of PhDs will ever have in academia is almost nil. I mean, I think back to a lot of the professors that I worked with, my PI, I mean, They'd work for years on something and then just scrap it because they were just spinning out research to get the next grant. And everybody in industry was discovering things so much faster. And that acceleration in industry uh, is occurring right now. And, and it's going to all the great discoveries are going to happen more and more. And, and the progress in industry because the academic system is so broken. In our cheeky stack, I will go through an article that talks about just how broken it is uh, and, and what's going on uh, in the, the, the line between higher education and uh, that undergraduate education, why you need to pay attention to it. So what I want to tell you is to focus on your career first. I've been talking about this all week. A lot of our social media from this past week has been talking about this. Do not make someone else's career, your PI, some other lifetime academic, your priority. Make it your, your career, your priority. Put your career first. If you're stuck in apathy, if 
You're letting something else be a crutch to sedate your mental energy because you just can't stop thinking about your career and something's wrong and you don't feel a sense of purpose. It's not you. It's the system. Find something positive and productive like your job search to get obsessed over, even if it's your first day in graduate school. Get obsessed with your job search. Get obsessed with your career, the options, the possibilities for you in industry. That will unlock your energy again. Okay, so let's talk about, let's go to the, the cheeky stack here and talk about what new tips are available for you specifically for your job search. Now, your work experience on your resume, right, should go on the first page. It goes after your professional summary. Uh, you can read articles on our website about the specifics for your resume. We even have listed recently all of the five resume templates you need to use. But it's important to know that your education should not be on the first page. That's the second page. Uh, you might also be thinking, okay, well, my job duties, my experiences, my technical skills are the most important thing on my resume. They're not, especially in your work experience section. It's got to be your transferable skills. Now, there's a great article in The Muse by Jacqueline Westlake uh, that talks about how to structure your work experience section and talks about different resume formats. And I was very happy to see uh, the gold standard cheeky scientist format uh, was mentioned, uh, not by name, but that's the similar structure that was referred to in the article and the combination format, which we have been talking about for quite some time, the combination format. So uh, make sure that you check out those resume formats. You can go to cheekyscientist.com on our blog page. It's under resources at the top to see what the five resume formats are that uh, you, should be, you should be using, you should have in your, your toolbox. I also like in this article, the question is asked, is it ever okay to tweak my job title? So many PhDs get very obsessive that you can never change your job title. Or, you know, they change or, or other PhDs change graduate student or post uh, PhD student to graduate research assistant, postdoc, right, to postdoctoral fellow. We try to make it sound more impressive. Uh, you can do this. You should do this, right, especially if the titles at your university or if you have some industry experience in the past are very uh, out there, right, like some smaller companies will invent their own job titles. Use the job title that would make sense for what you did and use it across, uh, it would make sense across organizations, right? Like some smaller companies will have a job title of, you know, uh, content coordinator extraordinaire. Seriously, like you'll see startups with these crazy titles. Uh, really, it would just be a, a content editor, possibly a, a technical editor, even a, a medical writer, depending on the job you're applying to. If writing and editing was involved in that or, or uh, you know, coordination of content portfolio manager might be the right job title to use. Now, one of the resume formats we talk about a lot is the functional format. It's been around for decades. We did not invent it. It's excellent to use if you have no industry experience because instead you could pull out those transferable skills, even technical skills at the top of your work experience instead of the job titles and underneath the, uh, the, the uh, skill you would say gained as a graduate research assistant at XYZ University. So just search. You could Google uh, functional resume format cheeky scientist and likely find that blog at the top. Uh, one suggestion that's in this 
uh, article by Jacqueline is listing out key achievements. I like this. I've seen this trend more and more. I think it's going to be increasingly popular in 2021. Essentially, under each work experience, let's say you have three bullet points for your top work experience, you'd have uh, another subsection in that particular work experience. And for each of your two, three, four work experience uh, segments, that says key achievements, where you just focus on those results. Of course, those results should be quantified. Um, quantifiable results, eye tracking studies show that people's eyes stop on numbers, the numerical values. There is an article in the stack by Caitlin McInnes. Uh, it's in the ladders. And I, I love this article too, because it's what we've been teaching uh, for years, almost a decade. The first question you're going to be asked during an interview after how are you is, tell me a little bit about yourself. It's very easy to think that everybody you interview with is going to be a trained interviewer. They're all going to be HR. No. When I was working in industry, very often I'd have my director, department head come in and say, hey, we're interviewing so-and-so. Can you talk to them for 30 minutes today? Here's their resume. Yes, sure. And then I would look at their resume and study it for hours and research them. Just kidding. I would put the resume on a stack of papers. And then with five minutes to spare, I'd run down the hall to where the interview room was with the resume, not having looked at it at all. Maybe I skimmed it. And then I would go in there. And to buy some time, I would say, after hello, how are you? I would say, tell me a little bit about yourself. We recommend the elevator pitch for this, where you say, of course, who you are. Uh, and both professionally and personally, right? Something personal, because like this article says, what you answer with is going to prompt their next line of questioning. And we want you to be able to build rapport with them. So if you can say, not just that you're an immunology specialist or you know, you're a computer programmer, but that you enjoy spending time outdoors, right? You like to go camping uh, during the summers. You, uh, you, know, you make your own arts and crafts. You know, something that shows that you're well-rounded, that the majority of the population understands, not something that pigeonholes you as a nerd. Hey, there's nothing wrong with being a nerd, but show that you're well-rounded. So don't say you know, that you're into these... Uh, you know, I had somebody say to me once uh, during a mock interview, no, I really like fantasy novels, right? These like the Fire and Ice or whatever the books were that turn into Game of Thrones. That's fine if you do, but, you know, don't say that. Don't say magic cards. Somebody else said that to me too. Don't say gaming, right? Show that you, show like a team-oriented outdoor activity that somebody without a PhD can identify with because that's very, very likely nine out of 10 times they will ask you about that. They'll say, oh, where do you go camping? Oh, what kind of arts and crafts? And you've disarmed them, right? Now you're talking about something that's more personable. They're going to get back to the other questions, but this is a great way to start your answer. Who are you professionally, personally, not too personal? What do you want? Reiterate why you want that, A, that you want the position, but then also why, right? Something beyond yourself. You want to see your knowledge translated to a product that helps people. You want to get on a team of professionals or direct or lead a team of professionals that can solve XYZ problem for the company. Of course, whatever your answer is should be aligned with why they're hiring you for this position and the goals of the position. In the article, they say duck, uh, conduct a SWOT analysis. So really the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats 
not in the company, but on yourself, which I like. I like that spin as well. There's a good, a couple of good articles in Fast Company. Now I like Fast Company. Uh, I do have. I have my own article published. One of my first articles published in Fast Company: the skills you need to grow your business and how to find them. It was published with my first book, Black Hole Focus. I mentioned it's kind of a fun article that talks about uh, different skills like uh, creative and innovative thinking. You know, being able to play with words and write for different audiences, networking, fortitude, but it has this unique angle of, you know, the type of person who does this well and the type that doesn't do it well. Um, But the articles that I'm talking about today, uh, what recruiters will look for in 2021, I really like this because it does a similar, it doesn't, well, it does a comparison, but related to your job search. So then it says, so previously job titles and degrees, now transferable skills. Again, we've been years ahead of this. This is why you need to listen to this show, read our articles. Uh, This is all we do. We have PhDs dedicated to mastering the field of job searching and communicating it to you. Then tell me about yourself. That's what recruiters used to ask. Now tell me about your COVID-19 story, right? So what are they? They're they're being more topical. We see this a lot now. What they'll usually say is, so it's been, you know, 2020 was a uh, transformative year. How, how did the year affect you? We're seeing a lot of those kind of questions. So it's a little bit more specific than, you know, what we just talked about previously. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So tell me a little bit about the changes you went through last year. Be prepared for that. Uh, the, one of the other, the last ones I wanted to mention, it's very topical for today. So they used to say, will, are you willing to relocate right now? How will you work across time zones? Or what's your morning routine? How do you prioritize your work? They want to know that you can get things done without somebody breathing down your neck because you need to work remotely, autonomously. Workforce decentralization is here to stay. I really like this article. I wanted to include it in the cheeky stack. Uh, First of all, the title is great. Six quirky questions from real life job interviews. They're not really, well, a couple of them are quirky, but uh, others are very, very common, popular, I should say, is a better word. Uh, very topical because, again, they're, they're occurring now. I'm seeing these a lot now. The first one is a bit quirky, though. If you were an animal, which one would you be? I hear, so this comes from a question that was trending for the last couple of years. You'd see this uh, not just in job searching, but across the board. You'll, if you search, you know, what's your spirit animal? <laughs> you see a lot of people, especially in the wellness industry. Uh, ask this question. This is a take on that. It says, okay, let's get rid of the spirit animal because this is a job search. We're going to be a bit more professional. If you were an animal, which one would you be? They just want to see that you can be personable, that they could be around you for a day or five days a week, you know, even on Zoom or uh, some other platform for years. And, uh, you know, the, the example they say is, well, let's say you say swan because I'm serene, uh, uh, on top of the water and paddling furiously underneath where no one can see my efforts, right? That was an example they gave, but just may, have fun with it. Something to think about before. Don't get hung up on, is this right or wrong? Let your personality come out here. There's no right or wrong answer there. I mean, okay, of course you can say something very wrong, keep it appropriate, but uh, have fun with it. Can you perform under pressure? This is a behavioral interview question for sure. Um, you know, 
I think giving an example, leaning into the star methodology, situation, task, action, result, talking about a time when you had to perform under pressure. Uh, I, I just wanted to call that out because we're seeing right now with all of the, the risk and the change and the stress people are going through, they want to know, can you handle some pressure? I really like this one. Can you teach me how to do something? They want to know how you mentor. This is a very common question for PhDs going into industry. They need to know that you can mentor, that you can virtually communicate with people, virtually get things done. Here's another one. Tell me something I don't know about you. This always freezes people. Right? But remember, they don't know most things about you. So keep it somewhat professional. The best answer here is the same answer that you gave for the personal side of the question. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're into arts and crafts. You have a hobby, a hobby that people can relate to. What do you think of your parents and brother? I like questions like this because they really throw people off. They're like, wait, that sounds like a personal question. Should I even answer it? Okay, people can ask you about your parents, your brother, your sister, whatever, a friend. You know, how do you make friends? We're seeing a lot of these questions because of that workforce decentralization. They, they want to know if you're personable, especially if they have to hire you without being able to be around you in person. Last one. Um, they'll give you some kind of moral dilemma. I haven't heard this one before, but I've heard similar ones. So right, let's say you accidentally serve meat uh, products to someone who's a vegan. How do you handle it? All right, so they want to know that if you make a mistake, especially to a client, are you, you know, going to hide it? You would never admit, <laughs> hopefully you never would actually uh, do this, but you would never admit that you just wouldn't say anything. So think it through. Don't let it scare you. Talk about the emotion behind it. Say, wow, I would feel very um, ashamed, but I wouldn't let that stop me from doing the right thing. And this is how I would handle doing the right thing. All right. So a few articles left in the cheeky stack. I did mention this one. Too many PhDs are being produced the problem starts when PhD students collect their degrees and go out into the world. The academic jobs they're accustomed to pursuing have been drying up. This is from Noah Smith, recent article in the print. Just everything that you know we have talked about for years is reiterated, but there's a new wrinkle. Uh, undergraduate enrollment is down. Now, you have to ask yourself as a PhD, what does this mean for the acceleration of the exodus of PhDs, of untrained PhDs into industry? What does it mean for the complete destruction of tenure professorships, uh, replacement with cheaper and cheaper adjunct and part-time? It's going to accelerate because the revenue, right, comes from a large portion of university revenue comes from tuition, undergraduate tuition. And it's a bubble, right, because tuition has gone up and up and up and up, but it can't support universities. And the, the university building revolution of the last you know, 100 years or so, it's over. You are going to see a lot of universities go out of business in the next couple of years. It's already happening. You're seeing the furloughs, everything. You do not have a future in academia. I had somebody online a couple of weeks ago say, I can't believe you talk about academia like this and that it's broken and there's no hope because that means for you and for cheeky scientists that you're in trouble because the university can't make any more PhDs. And then what are you going to do then? You know, gotcha. I was like, okay, first of all, 
you do know that certain countries have been experimenting with having companies produce PhDs. <gasps> what do you think is happening to education in general? It's becoming democratized. We produce programs, management track training programs that give certificates that are, that are accredited continuing education credits. So you can turn to elitism to make you feel better about this trend, or you can realize, okay, wait a sec. Universities are not going to recover from the ability of everyone to learn online. They're just not going to recover. The big ones will, of course, you know, like the Harvards, the Stanfords, the Oxfords. You're going to have a lot of the big ones survive, but they're going to turn uh, their courses online more and more. You're seeing this through uh, a lot of different uh, sites that, that have come up that are working with universities. Um, we're even working on this with a couple of universities. So you're going to see this trend continue. Uh, and PhDs, I believe, and other degrees as well, we're already seeing this. I mean, there's online universities that grant MBAs, of course, you know, bachelor degrees, et cetera. It's only a matter of time till it happens for PhDs as well. You're thinking, well, what about it, you know, when you have to do an experiment, if that's the kind of PhD you're getting? Okay, so just like there's shared workspaces, there will be shared lab spaces. There are shared lab spaces. PhDs will continue to be, you know, it's past the tipping point for PhDs. It's not going away. That degree is not going away. It's highly valuable. It produces highly valuable individuals such as yourself, but a university is not needed for it. Think about that. All right, let that percolate a little bit. Uh, so it's a good article to read out. Check that out. I got one more for you. Top life sciences startups to watch in 2021. Now, most of these are in Massachusetts and California. Okay, so even if you need a visa, though, it is uh, easier to get a visa in those states uh, very often. So I don't want you to count yourself out, but I want you to pay attention to these. Uh, I'm going to be working to help you develop your business acumen to understand what's going on in industry more and more. Uh, so these are some names to watch out for. EQRX in Massachusetts, Arsenal Bio in California, uh, our friends at Immunearing in Massachusetts, Celerity, Omega Therapeutics also in Massachusetts, uh, Q32 Bio in Massachusetts, uh, our friends at Shape Therapeutics in Washington, Washington State that is, Arteva Biotherapeutics in California, Aminix Pharmaceuticals in California, Scribe Therapeutics in California, Coda Biotherapeutics in California as well. Werewolf Therapeutics in California also wins the best name. <laughs> See, what did I tell you about the names at startups? Aspen Neuroscience in California. Forge Biologics. We've got to say one in a different state, Ohio. Forge Biologics. And then MoMA Therapeutics in Massachusetts, you've likely heard of. Uh, so just a couple of the top ones here. Um, oh, I, I will mention one more. Santa Biotechnology is also in Washington. So they, and they announced, I think they had uh, over 700 million they raised, uh, led by several co-founders of Juno Therapeutics. You might remember Juno Therapeutics. Uh, we talked about them a lot uh, a couple of years ago. Company's focus is on modulating genes as well as replacing damaged cells in the body. EQRX possibly the least creative name. <laughs> uh, so they got uh, 200 million Series A uh, for the Series A round in funding. Uh, formed a global strategic partnership with Seastone uh, Pharmaceuticals. 
added two late stage immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies to its pipeline worth 150 million upfront. Uh, Arsenal Bio, which I mentioned, is that was in California. Uh, they had 85 million Series A. Their focus is on building a programma, programmable cell therapy company by integrating technologies such as CRISPR-based genome engineering, scale and high throughput target identification, synthetic biology, and machine learning. Now, these are life sciences. You know, we've been discussing a lot of engineering, a lot of uh, social sciences, but we're doing life sciences today. Stay tuned for future radio shows. We're going to be talking uh, more and more about industry and, again, business acumen. Uh, immuneering. 20 million Series A. Uh, they are developing a disease canceling technology and computational platforms. I tried to find more information on that. I don't know. Disease canceling. I mean, it sounds like uh, sound canceling, right? Or, or background noise canceling headphones. <laughs> disease canceling. I, I do want to learn more. So maybe Ben up there can tell me more about it. He's the CEO. Uh, Celerity. They have a cell-centric approach to drug discovery. I couldn't find information about how much uh, they got in funding yet. All right, last one. Let's go. Let's let's talk about the uh, werewolf therapeutics. So they got fifty-six million in Series A. Uh, their predator protein, right? <laughs> so this again, just winning on the names here. Predator protein engineering platform engineers potent biologics. They can be delivered systematically in an inactivated format to prevent unwanted effects on non-target tissues. So yeah, so they're doing like novel immunostimulatory therapeutics. All right, that's the end of the Cheeky Stack. That's the end of the radio show. Make sure you stay tuned to the Job Search Jumpstart event that we will be holding for one day, January 18th. Your chance to get access to all of our programs with or without the association. It's going to be an incredible day and deal. Look out for the VIP page on cheekyscientist.com so you can get the bonuses. Thank you all. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser Scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it. Then enter the coupon code Cheeky Radio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's Cheeky Radio, C H E E K Y R A D I O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect 
and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, Nobody else offers this. PhDsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth. 